0: Everybody has a story. What's yours? Good morning. My name is Tom Ricks. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. I want to add my welcome to you and happy Easter. It's great to see all of you smart people here at 8 o'clock beating the crowds. Some of you are up maybe looking for Easter baskets early this morning. We have grandchildren at our house. I left before 6 and they were already on the hunt. I was happy to leave before 6 this morning. We want to consider God's Word today, but I, I want to say this as we start. Uh, this, the story this morning is very intentional because of the, what we said at the beginning. Everybody has a story. And what we hope today, whether this is the first time you've ever set foot in a building called a church or whether you're here Sunday in and Sunday out, whether you are a bold and, uh, and loud follower of Jesus, whether you're really quiet about your faith or whether you have no faith at all. We hope that you would consider God's Word in the context of your story. Uh, a little bit about my story. Uh, I grew up in, here in Kirkwood uh, on a street called Nurk Avenue, which is the absolute worst name you can ever have for a street. I was the jerk from Nurk. I was the nerd from Nurk. There's a lot of bad things you can do. That The first guy ever to live in that area, that was his last name, Nurk. And for some reason, he thought we would really appreciate having that for several hundred years. But here's kind of the cool thing about my family. Um, if Cindy and I are living in our house in 2019, there'll have been somebody from our family living on that street for a hundred years. That's a pretty cool thing. Uh, everybody moves these days. Nobody sticks around. I'm not sure which one of my kids is going to move back in after I go, but... Uh, That's kind of a neat part of our story. We're going to look at God's story this morning, as I said, in the context of our story. But interestingly, a lot of amazing things about God's story with us and his interaction with us happen in gardens. And so we're going to look at a garden, to a garden, to a garden, to a garden this morning. Uh, And we should be done about 11 when we finish that. We'll move along a little quicker than that. Uh, But hopefully you will see yourself in the pages of this story. It probably will be easier this morning for you to follow along in the Scriptures, either on the screen or in the, in the program, than trying to follow along in your own Bible. We're going to be in Genesis and Luke and John and Revelation, and I'm going to read those sequentially now for us. So hear the Word of God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was the desire, desire to make one wise. She took it, the fruit, and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And he, that being Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. She said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the worship in song. Being reminded that this is the day that we celebrate your resurrection, your defeat once and for all of sin and death and hell. That we might experience new life, salvation, and grace, and mercy. Those of us who deserve nothing but your punishment, your condemnation, and your holy wrath. were set free to have a new life. Father, we thank you that we can add our amen to all who have come before us, singing your praises and your glory. And now, Fathers, we turn our attention to your word to, to seek to worship you with our minds to intellectually engage with you, we pray that you would teach us. Father, we live in a very broken world. We live in a world that is filled with strife and angst and fear and anxiety. We thank you that your word deals with this head on. It helps us understand the context of our lives and the context of your plan of grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us, even in the midst of of getting ready this morning and, and Easter egg hunts and family celebrations and all the things that are swirling around us, we pray now, Lord, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would be our teacher. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to what you want us to understand this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, sermon, in a sense, is a little bit long this morning, but I think you can follow it. Uh, Resurrection morning marks the pivotal moment in God's redemptive work when the seeds of a new and glorious garden were planted for all who put their faith in the risen Christ Jesus. So what we're going to do, as I said, is we're going to walk from garden to garden to garden to garden. And hopefully, uh, this sermon, in a sense, will pop out. We'll understand uh, what's going on in God's work and as he establishes his kingdom and how it applies to our lives so that we can ask the question, uh, is it is it right for us, is it good for us, does it make sense for us to put our faith in Christ today? The first thing I want us to notice this morning, we're going to go back to Genesis, and what I want us to see is our work, humanity's work, in God's garden. We're going to flip that in a little bit, we're going to talk about how God works in some of the gardens that are here, but we want to start with what, uh, how we worked in God's garden. The first, let me remind you... Um, how the Lord set all this up, right? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, even if, you, if you're not a theologian, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've heard the term Garden of Eden, and you, you, you probably know that stands for God, a paradise on earth, the very best place uh, where you could possibly be. Think, think about your dream vacation, okay? Now, that could be in the mountains. It could be in the beach, It could be just in a quiet room with no children around. It could be a lot of different places. It could could be on a playground with no parents around, right? But think about your dream vacation and then multiply that times about a thousand, right? God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He gave them the the, the perfect spot. And he gave them to, to work it and to keep it. "'The Lord commanded the man, saying, "'Surely you may eat of every tree of the garden, "'but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil "'you shall not eat. "'For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die.'" Let's look at just a minute at God's intentions. What was God doing here? What was his plan for humanity? And I'm gonna kind of run through a bullet point list pretty quickly here. The first is this, that he offers friendship. Again, your your enemy doesn't send you to the garden spot in the world. (laughs) The person that doesn't like you, the person that doesn't care about you, maybe they'll let you use their lake house down at Lake of the Ozarks, okay? Nothing against Lake of the Ozarks, right? But it's not Fiji. <laughs> it's not one of those huts on the Pacific where you open the door and you put on your snorkel gear and you're in the water. You might be wondering where my dream vacation is. There there it is after I've left Scotland for a week of golf, right? God is offering friendship. He, he's offering a wonder. You know, the, the garden spot of the world that only comes through friendship. But he also, his intention is for humanity to have a purpose. So this is yours to develop. This is yours to, to take care of. You, you, you nurture it any way you want to. And even down to this day, you go to the grocery store and there's a, there's a new and different kind of orange. There's a, there's a new and different kind. How are grapes seedless? How is that possible? How can I have a watermelon that doesn't have seeds in it anymore? I mean, the, the the thought process of mankind to develop and to grow and to nurture is astonishing. And that was God's intention from the very beginning. His intention was that we would have a purpose in our lives that would be in partnership with him. But he also is one whose intention was that we would have freedom. I've made all of these trees, right? You pick. Maybe you like apples and you like oranges. Maybe I like cherries and you like pears. But there's every imaginable piece of fruit under the sun. And God gives his children freedom to choose and to pick and to and to work. But he also gives them honesty. And he also helps them understand that they have choices to make, that they're not robotic. God has not wired them in a way that they're forced to obey him, that they're forced to be in a friendship with him. God didn't make the world, God didn't make uh, the initial plan so that we would have to get in line and do what he wanted to do. But God was honest with Adam and Eve, and he said, all of this you can have, but you see that, that one tree over there, all right? It's your choice, but let me give you a piece of advice of somebody who loves you and cares about you and has provided the best for you and wants the best for you. Don't, don't eat of that tree, it'll kill you. It will bring death. But God was honest with his people, but he gave them a choice to make But also, I want you to, we we have to notice that God is a God of life, right? God says, please don't choose death. That's what God did. That was his intention as the world began. What was our response? How does humanity respond to this friendship, to this love, to this honesty, to this care, to this this freedom, to this purpose, right? What does it say in verse 3? So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, or so she thought. So she took of the fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What was our collective response in humanity? To reject God. To reject everything that he offered. To turn our backs upon him, and to go our own way. And what are the results of that decision? What are the results of the decisions of your life and and my life when we go our own way? Well, scripture is very clear about that. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing a couple of thousands of years ago, summed it up beautifully in just a sentence when he said this, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, Death passed upon all men because all of sin. There are two words there, and Paul's very careful with them. He talks about sin, about our falling short, about our not doing that which we ought, not thinking the way we ought, not caring the way we should, not loving the way we should, but being selfish and being motivated by our own pride and by our own ego and our own greed. And going in a way that God never intended for us to go. But what happens when we go our own way? We hurt one another. Ultimately, it leads to death. God was honest, remember? He promised us that would be the outcome. And you and I live with that outcome every day. That's how we're born. We might look wonderful and innocent when we're born. We might we even say, look at that innocent little baby. But the facts are, every little innocent baby has grown up to be people like the people in this room they are filled with sin and with brokenness and with angst in our heart towards God if he doesn't intervene in our lives. And so I find myself, and you find yourself, if we're going to be honest, living in a world of sin and death. But it's of our doing. A few years ago, I gave up on my front lawn. I just couldn't figure it out. I, uh, I finally bit the bullet and I hired a lawn guy. And, uh, and he came a few years ago, and he looked at my lawn, and, and he was frowning when he looked at my lawn, and he said, it's a good thing you called me, and I felt like I was talking to a paramedic in an accident, <laughs> and he said, I, I think we can save her, <laughs> like, I sure hope so, I just want something green out here, with not a whole bunch of other stuff, and so he began to work. And it began to work. And now it's like four years later, five years later. And if you drive by my, by my house, you'll notice that it's a, it's a pretty good green lawn right now. And I'm a cheapskate. I just did the front lawn. Don't look at my backyard because it looks like the front yard used to look. But the front yard looks pretty good. But there are these two Bartlett pear trees in my front yard that are always in a lot of shade. And it's really hard to grow grass under those shade trees, right? So I did the logical thing and called my lawn guy, right? Nope. <laughs> I can get this one. I can figure this out. So every year I put down some, some seed and I go over to OK Hatchery and I say, I want the seed that grows in the shade and it's Georgia something or other. And I go and I spread it down and then I get a bale of hay and I spread out the hay so it'll cover that. And then I water it and then, then the grass comes up. But interestingly enough, kind of all around that area, there, there are these weeds that keep popping up and the grass only makes it to about the end of June and then it dies. right. So I called my lawn guy the other day, and I said, Brian, would you, you know, come over and take a look at this? And he comes over, and he stands in my front yard, and he's looking at it, and he's like, did you go to college? <laughs> I, yeah, he goes, what did you study? I said, it ought to be clear what I studied. As you look at this, I studied sociology, right? not horticulture. Right? He goes, let me ask you a question. Where would that straw come from? I said, I came from OK Hatchery. He said, no. Where did it come from? What field did it grow in? I said, I don't know what field it grew in. He goes, well, what else was growing in that field? I said, I have no idea what else was growing in the field. He goes, you see, that weed, that weed, that weed, that weed, they were all growing in that field. Would you stop messing with my yard? <laughs> 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 I thought I was fixing it, right? I bet you've had moments in your lives, because I know I've had moments in my life where I thought I could fix my life, where I thought that I Knew enough, and I didn't need God. And I could I could manage on my own. Thank you very much. And all we're doing is planting weeds. And all we're doing is making Brian's job harder. That's been our response to God's grace and mercy. And humanity is basically the history of the world is basically humanity thinking that we know better. But friends, we cannot go back. The well is poisoned, and it's poisoned beyond repair. And we can't fix it. And it's like a domino. When one domino... Well, instead of me saying that, just watch the screen for about a minute. We took a very short clip of a much longer video. Watch this. So that's a that's about a minute's worth out of the, the Guinness Book of World Record domino fall. That If you watch the whole thing, it's over seven and a half minutes long. Okay. Hundreds of thousands of dominoes, tens of thousands of dominoes falling down. And, and, and it makes a point. It actually makes two different points. The first one is this. Every time I try to fix my life, it's like knocking over one more of those dominoes. And I have thousands of experiences in my life now at the age of 58 where I have tried to go my own way. And it's like just knocking over one other domino. The other way to look at that is collectively is humanity. And you and I are both one of those dominoes. And ultimately, we all fall. That's our response to the work that, uh, that God did in our garden. But God didn't stop there. That's just the first garden. There are three this morning. The second we want to look at is in Luke 22. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He prays, Father, if you're willing, <clears throat> he's talking about the cross. This is the night before he goes to his crucifixion. Remove this cup from me, this, this death on the cross. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is agonizing over his work. He's seeing. He's understanding that if he's going to kind of see this through to the end where it's going to lead. He understands that the crucifixion was not just a physically painful experience that that led to a death by suffocation. It was. It was excruciating. It was an awful way to die. But thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been executed by a cross. The difference in this experience was that he was not only going to be in, in physical agony but he was going to bear God's unbridled, perfect, holy wrath against sin. That Jesus was going to pay for your sins and for my sins, for all of those dominoes, for all those bad decisions that have been an offense against God and have hurt those around us. And Jesus, at the thought of that moment, almost became completely emotionally and spiritually undone. But because God is committed to his work in our garden, he strengthened his son so that in a few hours, Jesus became the sacrifice for your sin and for mine. In uh, John chapter 1, if you go back and look at John chapter 1, uh, in verse 29, Jesus says, I'm not going to put it on the screen, Jesus had a cousin named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is leading a revival around the area of Jerusalem. And Jesus comes by one day and John looks up and he stops his preaching and he stops his baptizing. And he says, look at that guy. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's God's work in our garden. Jesus, the one who will take away sin. But it took the cross. It took the death of the perfect one for you and for me to experience new life. And the cross begins to undo our work of rebellion and sin that leads to our brokenness. But there's another garden that Jesus experiences and that we're celebrating this morning. The cross happens, Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many, and then we go to Resurrection Morning, which we celebrate today, and we go to John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, we see a broken-hearted follower of Jesus. We see Mary, who has come to the garden, thinking that she's going to prepare the body of Jesus to make sure that, that his body was cared for well, because a couple of guys tried to take care of it on Friday, and she knows that when a couple of guys try to take care of something that important, they probably are going to get something wrong. So she goes to make sure that, it, that it's done correctly. And she gets there, and, and Jesus' body is gone. And she assumes that someone has stolen it or someone has moved it. And she's literally heartbroken. It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. I, I want you to get the strength of that word. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you have sobbed uncontrollably, where you have been inconsolable, where you have been so stricken with grief that it do, you don't even know who's around you. You don't even know what they're saying. You simply are completely broken by the pain of the suffering that you're experiencing. That's what Mary was going through. She was sobbing. She was heartbroken. She was crushed She was hopeless, she was in despair. She was in what Henry Nouwen calls despicable isolation. Have you ever found yourself in that moment? If you have, you know how completely and utterly lost you feel. C.S. Lewis wrote a book late in his life called A Grief Observed. He actually wrote it under a pen name and it it didn't, uh, it wasn't known until after his death a few years later that he was the author of the book. Uh, He's talking about his experience when his wife, Joy, passed away. And it was interesting that a year uh, after his wife had died and and the book came out, some friends, not knowing that he wrote it, gave it to him, saying this may help you with your grief. Listen to some of his words. Her absence is like the sky spreading over everything. I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate it if they do. And I hate it if they don't. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. The pain is so real, it's palpable. You can, you can feel it. You can almost taste it and smell it And sense it. That was Mary. She stood by the tomb. That's why when she looked at Jesus and saw him, she didn't recognize him. You may have heard that and go, well, that sounds odd. She's been hanging around Jesus, you know, for three and a half years. How could she possibly not recognize him? Because she was so completely undone by her grief. And Jesus steps into the scene. And you think he's going to just grab her and hug her and put his arms around her tell her it's going to be okay, right? But he doesn't. He actually, knowing that she doesn't recognize him, he actually asked her two apparently very insensitive questions, right? "Why are you weeping?" I've been in a lot of grave sites. I've been in a lot of moments with people who are laying someone to rest, whether it be a child or a peer or a a brother, or a sister, or a parent, or a grandparent. I have never once in my life looked at one of those people in a cemetery and said, why are you so upset? Why are you crying? If I did that, you would fire me as the pastor of Green Tree Community Church, and you should, right? That's a completely insensitive thing to say, right? But Jesus is not being insensitive. He's drawing Mary out. He's drawing her to faith. And the second question is, Whom are you seeking, right? Well, she certainly isn't seeking someone alive, which means she missed it. She missed what Jesus had been telling her all along. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've I've got to die at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, but I'm going to raise again. My father's going to bring me back to life. And Mary had missed that, and so Jesus drives that point home with her that, that it's going to be okay and so I love the, when she gives her answer, I'm looking, I'm looking for my Lord. If you've taken him away, tell me where he is and, and I'll just go and care for him. And now Jesus just says the one word that needs to be said, Mary. Right? I don't know what the, uh, the deepest longing of your heart is. What really kind of keeps you up in the middle of the night, I can tell you mine, Mine is that I would hear God say to me in a tender voice, a friendly voice, a welcoming voice, Tom. Because it would mean that I was significant to him. It would mean that I was important to him. It would mean that he cared about my brokenness and my hurt and my pain and my struggle. And that he would accept me into his family. And Jesus says the perfect word. It's a word that every one of us needs to hear it's her name and that's almost enough i could i could stop there but the prompter says that i have six minutes and 44 seconds left to go and there's one more garden to visit because that's almost good enough. It's, al- it's almost enough to stop right there, but that's not the end of the story. It's not the last garden where we find God at work. Now we see in Revelation 22 that God has left our insufficient gardens behind and he's creating a new one. Listen to these words. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever and ever. God knew that there was one more garden that was needed this morning at Green Tree Community Church and around the rest of the world. And so he tells us about his garden in the middle of his city. Kind of Forest Park or or Central Park, but on steroids of about a billion, right? The river whose source itself is Jesus. This river flows from Jesus' throne. Remember when Jesus was talking to uh, the woman at the well in Samaria, if you've ever read John chapter four, all right? And he says, hey, could you give me a drink? It's kind of a hot day. And she's confused because he comes from their two nationalities, didn't get along with one another. She's, like, I don't know, why are you asking me for a drink? You're, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus just totally flips the conversation. He says, well, forget about my drink because if you knew who I was and why I was asking you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. And here it is. In Jesus' city, he provides the living water. He has replanted, so to speak, the tree of life. And the water that flows and nourishes that tree creates the leaves that are for the healing of the nations. This is a glorious metaphorical picture of how Jesus and his death and his resurrection redeem everything for you and for me. His healing, his removal of all evil, his fellowship his friendship, his protection, his unending, limitless joy. It sounds a lot like the first time around the block, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like what he intended all the way back in Genesis, but there's a big difference. This time around, your heart's gonna be changed and my heart's gonna be changed, not to be robots, but to see the truth for what it is. You'd have to be insane not to love Jesus. There is no other choice because of the work he has done from garden to garden to garden to garden. And for all of eternity, we will live in that moment of glory and of forgiveness, of grace, of knowing one another's names. Everyone has a story. Scripturally speaking, they all seem to be tied to several gardens. Does your story include a faith? Does my story include a faith that leads us home to his? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this Easter morning for the plan of salvation that you unfolded when we came to your garden and destroyed it by our choices that ignored your love and your friendship And led us to rebel against you. And from that moment forward to do terrible, terrible harm to this world and to one another. So Father, we come this morning as people in need of a new garden. Every one of us has a story, but it is a story of brokenness. It's a story of a thousand times trying to put the pieces back together. And every time falling short and being right back in the same spot. So Father, I pray for every disciple of Jesus that's in this room this morning that you would remind us of your great glory and your great grace. That the pivotal moment was the resurrection but there's a day coming when we will be home with you. Father, for every person here who is skeptical, who is fearful, who is uncertain, who doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning. May they know that all they need to do is call on you for life and you will call them home by name. We pray in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.